guys, I'm Eric Olson, and welcome to another episode of the Science Centric Podcast. Who can forget the classic 1993 movie, Jurassic Park? In that film, scientists extracted dino DNA from mosquitoes trapped in amber fossils and used it to bring back all kinds of terrifying creatures, from the mighty T-Rex to overgrown velociraptors. Fast forward to 2019, and we've yet to create dinosaurs or any other creatures for that matter by extracting ancient DNA. It turns out DNA molecules degrade pretty quickly, leaving us without the necessary blueprints to reconstruct extinct animals. But that doesn't mean scientists have given up on de-extinction. There are a number of projects underway to bring back the woolly mammoth, the passenger pigeon, the auroch, an ancestor of modern cows, and yes, even dinosaurs. And then there are other projects trying to resuscitate more recently extinct animals, like the perennial ibex, and animals teetering on the edge of extinction, such as the northern white rhino. These pioneering experiments are the subject of the book The Reorigin of Species by Swedish journalist Torl Kornfeldt. I spoke to Torl about what motivates the scientists behind the extinction, how cutting-edge genetic techniques are being used to mold living species into extinct ones, and why many conservationists are critical of this entire enterprise. Torl, thank you so much for being on the Science-Centric Podcast. It's great to have you with us today. It's really nice to be with you. Yes. So your book is about de-extinction, and there's a number of themes sort of running through the book, which I really enjoy, this, this idea of uh, Prometheus, uh, the, the myth of Prometheus, you know, sort of humans playing with fire, and there's sort of a dangerous element and a, and a, a beneficial element to it. Um, but there was also this term that you used, which is called, and I'll tr- I don't know how it's pronounced, solastalgia. Um, and could you explain what that concept is and, and how that theme sort of runs through your book? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like like this nostalgia for a lost nature or like a lost um, environment. So I think a lot of uh, a lot of us are, are feeling it kind of when we see climate change. I mean, in Sweden, this winter we hadn't haven't really had a, a proper winter in southern Sweden where I live, and, and there's been a lot of talk about you know that sense of when I was a kid. We used to go out skiing, but now there hasn't even really been snow properly. And, and and you have that sort of sense of loss as nature is changing. And and you have this, but but it's also, I mean, it's to some extent is a really powerful feeling and, and it can sort of motivate you into action and, and, and do things. But it's also kind of um, deceptive because you also have this sense of like when when nature was perfect and, and most of us have this idea of nature was perfect when say like our grand grandparents were children mm-hmm. that's like the perfect mm-hmm. nature uh, and biologists uh, also have a lot of them have this kind of idea of, of when the perfect nature was whereas nature of course is this really changing thing so this this sense of, of environmental nostalgia is both a really is a really useful feeling as an acknowledgement that we're living in a changing world and we need to do something about it but it might also be a bit a bit strange in that sense that we really want to preserve preserve something in in a in a very like a tight spot of of how things can be 
Yeah. So people probably have a, you know, view of, of nature that looks something like, um, you know, Disney's the Lion King or something with, <laughs> you know, yeah. herds yeah. of animals wandering across the plains. And, and but um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's not a static sort of thing. And, and we've had these, you know, epochs of of change and, and sort of global change on the planet. Um, yeah, and and I mean nature. Nature has never been an, uh, a stable thing. Nature has, has always been changing. That of course doesn't mean that. I mean, we are the thing that is changing nature right now. Those mm-hmm. the, those two things aren't in in conflict with each other, but but nature is always always changing and always evolving. So in the book, um, I think you introduced this concept when you're talking about the passenger pigeon. Am, am I correct? Um, exactly. Yeah, and and a gentleman named is it Ben Novak that is trying to resuscitate the passenger pigeon. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that and and also his perspective. I think it's interesting. Exactly, because then I mean we we also have of course the sense for species that we've lost, like species we've grown up with that that we've lost, and one of them in the U.S. one of them is the passenger pigeon. So about 150 years ago, so in the beginning of the 1800s, the passenger pigeon was probably the most common bird anywhere on earth, uh, like the the absolute mo- most con- common bird. Uh, and it was really like a, like a sort of an icon because they, it would move in these really dense flocks through the, through the landscape. And, and once it, it came somewhere, they were like this really you know, it would like darken the sky, and there's uh, descriptions of of bird poo falling like snow. Oh when my these god! Flocks go by, and then you know they would come to an area, and they would like eat everything, and 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 they would just move away, and they were completely random. So compared to other moving birds, they didn't really follow a pattern, and that meant, of course, that once once they were where you were, you had like an abundance of food. But you couldn't really count on them, so so they had survived in this way of not really defending themselves by just being so many that always enough of them like they couldn't really be eaten because they were so random and 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 such massive flocks. Right. And then of course humans introduced uh, the telegraph and the um, railroad, and those things meant that you could both keep track of the flocks and you could transport the meat, and those two things together were enough to drive this bird to extinction. Uh, so uh, the last wild passenger pigeon was spotted in the year 1900. And then the last one in captivity died uh, in uh, Cincinnati Zoo in uh, 1914. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was this, this extremely quick chain from being the most common bird to to absolutely zero and that that was actually really interesting in the u.s because that was one of the wake-up calls that sort of founded the conservation movement within Uh the u.s yeah because before that things like like the bison for example or the passenger pigeon were people really didn't think you could you could make them extinct because there were so many of them and this was like the perfect example of, of the power of humans and, and sort of the power of modernity to change nature, which is also the reason why, or one of the reasons why Ben Novak really wants to bring it back. 
Um, so, so he is trying to bring it back by genetically altering a, a really close relative to the passenger pigeon. But how is he doing? I mean, uh, you detail this in the book, but I, I thought that was really interesting how uh, he's going about doing that. And it seems like this is a theme within the book about it's not so much about bringing species back, but it's about almost reverse engineering those species um, from existing species. So could you talk a little bit about that? Exactly. So if you want to like bring a species back that, that is extinct, you have a few options. So for very, very few species, you would have the alternative of having like properly scientifically frozen cells. So you would still have live cells in a, in a freezer somewhere in a lab. Those have been, those, the, there are some frozen cells available for some species that have gone extinct, say the last 10, 20 years maybe, um, or that are very, very threatened now and might go extinct in the future. And, and if you have those live cells, then you could do cloning basically or different variants of cloning. But for every other species that has ever lived on Earth and that we've lost, that is not an option. So what you have for the passenger pigeon, for example, is that you have these beautiful stuffed birds in museums everywhere. Um, and what you, what you do is you, you take a small sample from them and you get the DNA out of that. And, and this is like you can you can extract the pure DNA and you can analyze that and that will give you a digital copy of the genetic material of the bird. So now you're like in a, in a completely digital world. You, you don't have the complete uh, DNA molecules because the molecule is, is broken down into basically this like imagine ripping a book into confetti, like tiny, tiny confetti. That is basically what you're having. And then you're taking a... Um, uh, a, an, a, reese, or a species that is alive now and you, that is uh, a relative and you're kind of using that as a template so you're taking all of these small pieces of confetti and sort of putting them together and, and matching them up so, so then what you have is you have a digital copy of your extinct species and then you have a, a close relative and what you can do after that is you can start looking for differences so you can start to see, like, here is an area that are different between these two species. And it's also an area that looks like it could be a gene for something that actually matters between these two species. So, uh, for, for, for example, elephants and mammoths, where you also do the same process, it's quite easy to see, like, you know, or easy, but you can see that, you know, this, this looks... You know, this, this looks like a gene that could be a gene for fur, or this looks like a gene that could be a gene for fat, because it looks like the gene for fat in mice, for example. Or, you know, so you, you try to do that sort of detective work of do these genes that differ between these species also look like they're relevant? Yeah. So, I mean, it really, it really is uh, sort of a reverse engineering. It's just, exactly. it's like here, yeah. here we have... Uh, you know, a complete organism and we're trying to sort of, uh, it's not, ex maybe not exactly the same, but it's a kind of like D we're, we're D we're tweaking these genes to kind of de evolve this creature or change it into the species yeah. that's extinct. Yeah. So you're Isn't sort of mammothifying an elephant or you're like yeah. passenger 
Jenny. <laughs> we we have new <laughs> yeah we have new verbs uh we're, we're yeah. creating here pass on passenger pigeoning this mammoth <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly so yeah it's sort of like adding features yes is, is maybe a way of thinking of it right right then and, and that is the stage where a lot of this research is now where we can you know we have the technology to do the sequencing we have the, you know, the technology to do this comparison and once we have that we also have the technology to create um, synthetic copies of these specific genes so you can't make like a full chromosome but you can take that that gene that's different and we also have the technology with new technology called CRISPR came out a few years ago yeah. uh, that technology can be used to then put those genes into cells of the animal we want to change and that basically is where things are now which is you know is a really amazing feat like you can have these 100 150 year old genes from a passenger pigeon actually functioning within a cell of another bird or you can have like mammoth genes that that were like 10,000 years old and you can have them sitting inside a cell but so so I think I mean not to downplay this at all because I think it's really amazing but there are still a lot of steps after that right. before you full animal because then you start to be like okay so is this gene functioning is it in the right place does it is it doing what it should be doing are <laughs> right. we having a, a method that's furry on the inside instead of the outside um like all of these things so and so then, so let, let me ask you a question then because hmm? are at that point are we really de-extincting animals or are we de-extincting genes in the sense that we're bringing back genes that that haven't been around for a very long time in living creatures but we but we can we really say that that creature at that point is a mammoth or is it a mammoth with old gene you know resurrected genes inside of it what are your thoughts yeah i would say uh, I would say, of course, that it depends on your defini- definition of a mammoth. I would say that, you know, it's not, it's it's a mammothified elephant. Mm-hmm. It's not a mammoth. Like, it's not a copy of, of, an ele- of a mammoth that ever lived. And it will never be a perfect, um, a, a perfect anything compared to what the mammoth was. So it's kind of like... It's kind of like you're, you're taking these two ends of, of what, an, of what a, an animal is. So you're taking the genetic end of it, which is quite a small part, and, and you know, doing some fiddling there. And hopefully for these projects, if they work, you're also taking the ecological end of it, like the, the functioning, what are these species doing in nature, how are they working, and, and you're just sort of taking that end of it and, mm-hmm. and saying you recreated that, but everything that is in between is lost and and that is lost forever so it's kind of like yeah i don't know it's kind of like i don't know building a tesla from scraps from a volvo (laughs) i guess or something like that i don't know i'm not i'm not quite like like you you, you're definitely losing something yeah Um, and i don't think Mm, a lot of people have, have raised concerns that this might m- might make us quite sort of throw away, like just having this technology m- might make us like less 
care less about nature. So I think it's really, really important to make this point that that the best case scenario is a really bad copy. Right. Uh, but it, but it might be better than none. Hey, sorry for the interruption. We'll get back to the interview shortly. I just wanted to take a moment to ask you for a favor. To continue bringing you great science content, we need your help building our community. There are several ways you can help out. One, tell someone you know about us. Word of mouth carries a lot of weight. Two, follow us on social media. We're at ScienceCentric on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And three, write a review for this podcast on iTunes. Reviews help this podcast get noticed. Thanks for your help, and now on with the show. This might be a good point to ask, you know, what are the people doing this work? What is their rationale for bringing these um, creatures back? Um, to bring it back to the book, I think you there's a lot of this book that is is you sort of questioning like why are these people doing this yeah. this really hard work to 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 resurrect these animals or these genes in some f- fashion why why are they doing it and we talked about the passenger pigeon but also uh the work of george church with the mammoth and um the the chickenosaurus project yeah. <laughs> to, to to sort of bring back a, yeah, a dinosaur I, I mean maybe there's different reasons but but i'm yeah. just I, you know i why, why do it what, what's the point oh, oh, oh. Um, I would say that there are two two big reasons. Uh, one is the one that researchers are keen to talk about, and the other is the one that I think is the most important one. So I'm going to start with that first, and I think that's I I think that it is useful and wonderful and amazing to sort of treat science as this sort of giant exploratory uh, adventure of like you do things out of curiosity and out of this like idea of 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 really being intrigued of what you find out and so i think a, a lot of the things that goes into these projects are just this like testing the limit of science and of course you have to take in ethical accounts of that but it's kind of similar like asking what you are what you why are you making a mammoth or, or a passenger pigeon to some extent is similar to, to ask like why are we going to the moon like there's there's nothing we like or at least in the 60s it wasn't like we needed anything on the moon it wasn't like we were going there for for for, for resources or, right. for food or for medicine but we can also see that taking that sort of leap and going on that adventure added to our lives in 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 many ways some of them very practical some of them almost like spiritual right. and i think and i think all of science has that that element in these kind of projects to a very large extent um but and then the other the other hand is very practical so there's also very practical reasons for a lot of these projects and that is that um even if an animal has been gone for quite some time from um uh, human perspective, usually nature either doesn't change that much or it kind of still feels the lack of that species. Not This isn't true for all species, but but some of the species really are engineers of, of the ecosystem that mm-hmm. they live in. Mm-hmm. Mammoth, for example, was 
uh, a species that was really, really important for keeping the grassland open in Siberia. The passenger pigeon played a role in, in doing these kind of wildfire thing. And um, in Europe, there are, pro there are projects with uh, the aurochs, uh, which is, yeah, um, big cows, the things that we made cows from, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Aurochs died out in the 1500s uh, or early 1600s. And, and there you also have a very clear function for these species. And you can see that having a big grazer in Europe or having these birds in the US or having a mammoth up by the Siberian tundra will actually have uh, do a job and create a service that will benefit other species, that will benefit species that are threatened today and that might have a, a, a positive sort of chain reaction mm. for other nature and I think I mean one of the most wonderful American perspective one of the most wonderful examples is that the avocado tree uh -huh. is still like it's in like wild avocado trees and, and a few other trees are, are are kind of in trouble because like the megafauna that that they are evolved to be eaten by died out like 10 I think 10,000 years ago, 14,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the trees are still there, but they're not spreading and they're not evolving in the way that they used to because these giant animals aren't eating their seeds anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's such an interesting uh, a story. And um, there's an ac actually a great book on that. I don't know if you've read it. It's called Ghosts of Evolution. By no, Connie Connie Barlow. Uh, I don't think she's she's still an active science writer. I actually, reached out to interview her about because I thought it was such an interesting topic. But um, but it goes into all of those uh, you know, uh, kind of plant animal relationships and how they, uh, you know, the, we have these ghosts of evolution that were kind of left without their partner that they evolved with. Um, for millions of years so yeah it's so fascinating um it is it I, really is hello again i hope you're enjoying this interview we'll get back to it in just a moment independently created science content like this doesn't just appear out of thin air we coordinate with our expert guests research interview questions capture the interview with state-of-the-art equipment cut out all the boring parts and then bear the cost of publishing and promoting each episode Needless to say, this all takes time and resources. If you enjoy this content and would like more of it coming your way, consider supporting us financially. There are a couple different ways to do that. You can find out more at sciencecentric.com forward slash support. Now back to the interview. Let's talk about the mammoth you, you talk about in the book that, you know, the mammoth's relation to climate change, which I think was yeah. really interesting. I don't think that most people would necessarily make that connection. Yeah, so so the mammoth is kind of like an, an uh, a, a sort of a case of this, like churned up to eleven almost. So in Siberia, so I, I traveled to Siberia when I was doing research for this book, and I was absolutely absolutely amazing. Um, so Siberia is facing a, a huge problem right now, where you have a situation where a lot of the ground is frozen. So you have permafrost, which means the ground is frozen, and but you also have had permafrost for so long that the ground also contains a lot of organic material. So it's kind of full of, um, of like, well, it's full of dead mammoths, but it's also full like plant roots and grass and, and all of these things that because they've been frozen, they haven't broken down. 
so same same thing as you know things in your fridge don't rot right basically and and what's happening now as as climate is heating up or, or warming that warming is actually happening a lot quicker in the arctic um, region than than in the rest of the world for various reasons so as this region thaws um, a lot of uh, this organic material you know microbes are getting access to it and it's broken down and that in turn creates more carbon dioxide and more methane so you have this sort of uh, increasing problem and you also have really horrible local problems of like uh, houses being broken in two because they, they they've been built on this frozen ground that is now thawing and one of the reasons that it's thawing is that it doesn't really get that cold in winter so Siberia gets super super cold in winter you can get like minus 50 degrees Celsius oh I my have God. no idea what that's in Fahrenheit I just, that's yeah, I you think, have a strange system. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think at that at that on that part of the scale, they it's just very cold, no matter what yeah. you're. <laughs> like yeah, like, like you can hardly breathe. Yeah, right. But right. the problem is that you have like even there you have uh, uh, it, it doesn't actually get that much snow, but you have a snow layer, and that snow layer will act as an insulator, uh, so that the ground is actually not that cold. It's only like. A few tens of degrees Celsius cold, still really cold. But but what you would have is that if you would have grazing animals, so if you would have horses or bison or, or aurochs or anything like that, they would dig through the snow, they would eat the grass, and, and in sort of moving around the snow, they would actually move the cold down into ah. the earth. And also having grassland instead of the forests that are there today would also create lighter landscapes that reflects more energy back uh, okay. yeah. as well. But then you, you kind of need bigger animals to, to shift forest into grassland. Uh-huh. So the theory is that, you know, if you have grazers, they can actually cool down, locally cool down this area. And, and there are some researchers in uh, Russia that have shown this. So they have like uh, quite large fenced-in areas where they have mainly horses, but a few other animals, and they have like therm- thermometers um, half a meter down into the soil on both sides of the fence, uh-huh. and they have a difference. So in spring, when you can really sort of sense the difference of, of after winter, they have a difference. I think of fifteen degrees inside and outside. Oh wow! Fence. Yeah. So this, I mean, in, at, at least in a small scale, this really really works. Yeah. And then the theory is that. The elephant or the mammoths, uh, in the same way as elephants, actually, on on the savanna, are the engineers of this landscape because a horse cannot uh, take down a tree. So an elephant or a mammoth would can quite happily like knock down trees and and create these open areas that grass can can grow in. And and right now they have like this old Soviet tank <laughs> that they oh like in. Sort of knocking down trees to create this, this more open <laughs> So this is this is really really crazy project where you have on the one on the one hand you, you I mean it's really clear from various angles that the theory works like this could actually be a way of of trying to preserve preserve the the permafrost and and preserve the the sort of land up there both for for their sake and for all our sake but on the other hand 
it kind of needs a lot of mammoths that are still kind of hard to make. <laughs> yeah. And it's a yeah. massive area. So, uh, yeah, it is one of these it's one of these projects that I'm really I'm I'm super fascinated by it and there's uh -huh. a lot of sense to it, but in the other hand, on the other hand it's also a really really crazy project. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of has both aspects. <laughs> yeah. You looked at all these different um, the extinction projects is there a particular animal particular species that you personally would like to see come back um i know for me it would be definitely be a dinosaur and <laughs> be a, a chicken a, yeah. chickenosaurus yeah. um it, uh, how about for you what, what what is your um i think it's yeah i think it, it varies a bit depending on if i let my sort of inner 10 year old answer the question or not um, if I let my inner 10-year-old answer the question, I want the giant sloth back. Ah. Sadly, no one is working on that. Um, if I'm being a bit more sort of adult and slightly emotional about it, I'm, I'm really sort of rooting for the northern white rhino. Ah. So this is a species where there is actually still two individuals alive, um, both females. The last male died really recently, and there hasn't been any, any births for ages um it's it's a really really sad story of poaching and habitat destruction that's sort of happened real time the two individuals that are still there have these armed guards around them constantly and it's, it's really sad but this is also a species where as i mentioned earlier that if you have properly frozen like scientifically frozen cells you can you can do this a lot easier so this is a species where there are frozen cells from from quite a lot of individuals uh -huh. so enough individuals to sort of restart this species hopefully without too much genetic problems because there are too few of them and 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 this is a species where once we've sorted out the poaching which is actually the the, the difficult problem we 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 have this kind of insurance of bringing the species back which is really to me really nice to know in 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 an area where it's so clearly our fault and and we it's our fault in in like current times not a hundred years ago so this is like a you know a, a recent extinction or or semi-extinction i mean there's exactly yeah so yeah. from a biological standpoint they've been extinct for a while since since they haven't been able to give births for a while but but yeah there's still two individuals left yeah um i think maybe a a good that's a good segue into uh, this will be my final question uh but it's a good segue into talking about this tension between uh conservationists conservationists and and de-extinction scientists which you, you you talk about at length in the book um yeah you know what what is what is that tension um i think it really comes up with these recent extinctions and how could they better work together uh to sort of help preserve biodiversity yeah so i think it's it's a really interesting culture clash actually that happened between sort of biotechnologists and and, and conservationists where where you had where where these new genetic technologies were developed 
and then there was a lot of, of geneticists and, and, and people from sort of that end of the spectrum just coming to the conservationists and be like, we can solve your problems. We can help you. And the conservationist was like, mm, you're, you, you, so, so, so what they were feeling to a large extent was, was this sense of like, you don't understand the magnitude of the problem. Just being able to preserve genes isn't the same as preserving a habitat or a, a species or, you know, an ecosystem. And, and there was a lot of, I think there was a lot of, of people talking across each other and not really understanding what kind of problems they were trying to solve. And, and you know, it's also the sense of like, hey, we can solve your problems that you've been working at for like, <laughs> tens and tens of years. Uh, is, yeah, we've, <laughs> look, we've got CRISPR. We can fix it all, right? We're, we're just gonna, Exactly. Yeah. And I think it, but I think it, also, it also captures the fact that when it comes to saving the species that are threatened today or the species that have just gone extinct or the species that you know now only survives in in um zoos which is quite common sadly it's it's rarely this really simple engineering problem so the problem is rarely you know if we could just you know if we could just clone 2000 tigers we'd be fine because there's always these really confounding factors of, of what humans are and what humans do when, when we you know, either cut down rainforest or poach uh, animals or heat up the planet, which, which you know, moves a lot of species and things like that. And, and I think finally the, con the conversation between these two groups right now is maturing. So, so we're kind of reaching a situation where, where we can look at, so, okay, so we have this new toolbox, we have this new set of of things we can use uh, let's look at how they can be useful and and how they can at least mitigate some of the other problems that we're causing right. without being too like techno like I don't know the right word in English like being too is like thinking you can solve everything with like a screwdriver yeah I think maybe it's a little uh, oversimplifying uh, yeah. The, the, the solutions which probably so, so, probably are going to have a you know economic component a uh you know sort of uh mindset component a you know like all these different things that have to change it, it, like just i mean it's like any problem i guess you throw you just throw technology at it it's not necessarily going to solve it right exactly so you yeah. can say so you could you could clone so even if you could clone 20 northern white rhinos tomorrow if you would release them in the wild they'd be dead within a few weeks maybe yeah. a few weeks. like yeah yeah because right. you haven't really looked at the the, the the confounding problem yeah um well it, it is it is very cool though that we could we even have a chance to bring some of these yes. species back um uh, they, they, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. The book uh, is called The Reorigin of Species A Second Chance for Extinct Animals um, yep we'll put this up on the website and um i just wanted to say it's it's just a fantastically written book um we talked about a lot of the ideas but you also have some great just um just very colorful depictions of the characters involved and and Thanks. your your insights uh reporting on this which i really enjoyed and and i and i really enjoyed the book so thank you for writing it <laughs> thank you i'm glad you yeah. enjoyed it well that's it for this show 
Remember, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ScienceCentric. We'd love to continue the conversation and hear your thoughts or questions about this episode. Also, to find out how you can support future episodes, visit sciencecentric.com forward slash support. Our audio engineer was Alexander James. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Our intro outro music comes courtesy of BitBasic. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Eric Olson.